Hello, this is Brett Martin with the podcast at Chesbro Baptist Church. We had just began last week a new Sunday morning series entitled Behind Enemy Lines. This is the second message finishing out the first chapter of First Peter. And the title of the message this morning is Holy Transformation, where we take a look at holiness for the Christian. Please enjoy. new series this morning called Behind Enemy Lines. Behind Enemy Lines. Last week was our first week. We're going to be going through the whole book of 1 Peter uh, on Sunday mornings. The whole book of 1 Peter, Behind Enemy Lines. And this is our second message in that series. If you have your places in 1 Peter, I'm going to ask you to stand in respect and reverence the Word of God. I'm not going to read through all the verses. I'm just going to read from verse 13 to verse 16, then we'll pray and sit, and then I'll finish reading. The Bible says in verse in 1 Peter 1 and verse number 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts of your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be Ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The title of the message this morning is Holy Transformation. I almost said Bat Holy Transformation, Batman, but I didn't. Holy Transformation. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you bless the message this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd bless what the whole what the word of God is telling us. And Lord, I pray that we take it to heart. May it change our lives. We're once again so thankful for you allowing us to be here this morning, for giving us the breath of life, for we can come into your house and listen to the word that you've given us. Bless our morning service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's start back up in verse 17 and read through the rest of the chapter. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversations received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit of unfeigned love of the brethren, See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and is the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now, when I was going to Bible college, one thing that they required us to do was to wear a tie at all times. And I guess that they're just trying to, I went to a conservative college, and they're just trying to, to instill that into us. And so what this means is when I left my dorm room, if I wasn't going to work, I was to have a shirt and a tie on, no matter what. If I'm going to uh, the, to the cafeteria, if I'm going to the college bookstore, if I'm going to class, if I'm going to chapel, I had to have a shirt and tie on. And this, this, this extended into, uh, into town. If I'm going to Walmart, if I'm going to JCPenney's, if I'm going to Kroger, I had to have a shirt and tie on. And if a staff member saw me out in town shopping and I didn't have a shirt and a tie on, I was going to get a demerit. And that's how they had the rules set up. So needless to say, I tied, I, I can tie ties several different ways. I know four or five different knots because 
I've tied ties for many years. And so uh, that was one of the things that they made us do. So inevitably, what inevitably happened is I'd be in Walmart or I'd be in JCPenney's and people would come up to me and ask me where stuff was. You know, I guess they thought I was an employee. I guess they thought I was the manager. And, you know, you eventually get tired of saying the same thing over and over. And I got tired of telling people I didn't work there. And so I eventually, okay, yeah, it's over there, you know. <laughs> If I knew where the thing was, I'm just going to tell them where it is. I'm just going to tell them what's going on because uh, I just got tired of saying I didn't work there. And I just, oh, yeah, it's over here. And I'd, I'd help the people. Now, why, why did they come up to me? Why did they, they ask me for things? Why did they think that I worked at that place? Why? Because I was set apart. I was different. There was something different about me. There was something that set me apart from everybody else. And when we talk about the word holy in the Bible, we're talking about being set apart. Look, when I, when we, listen, today when I say the word holy, I am not talking about holy in the way that God is holy. I am not talking about holy in the way that God is holy. Holy for God means that he is sinless his sinless character, he is perfect, sinless and perfect and glorious, and he is to be honored and glorified and revered, and he is way up there, and I'm way down here. So when I talk about holy, I'm not talking about holy the same way God is holy. Holy for me and you is different. Holy for me and you means set apart from the world. That's what holy is. When you are holy, you are set apart from the world. You are different than the world. Now, there are two words in the Bible that mean this, that sanctification and holy. Both these words are synonyms. They both mean the same thing. Sanctification and holy means set apart. So if they both mean the same thing, is there any difference between these words? And there is. Even though they mean the same thing, Sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit. We saw that last week. We saw that last week when we went over verse 2 in 1 Peter, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I'm not going to read you the other verses, but it's all through the New Testament. The sanctifying of the Holy Spirit, sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit. Because what happens is that when, when the, the, the moment you get saved, the Holy Spirit enters you, the Holy Spirit changes you. The Holy Spirit makes you different. We talked about last week how, how, how some different ways the Holy Spirit does make you different. And from the time you get saved, the Holy Spirit begins to change you. And so it's a process ultimately ending in heaven when the perfection of the Holy Spirit's work comes to pass and we are officially completely changed when we get to heaven. Now here on earth, that process is a little different for each person. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is different for each person. It's not the same because we're flesh and we can hinder the Holy Spirit's work. But when it comes to, the, when it comes to sanctification, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. Holiness is a different story. Holiness is a different story. Holy is another way we're set apart from the world. And the beginning of this chapter tells us that sanctification is the Holy Spirit's work. But holiness? Holiness is on me and you. Holiness is on us. Last, you know, saying, you know, last week we talked about the Holy Spirit making changes in our lives. Today, we're, now it's time for us to make some changes in our lives. Time for me and you to make some changes. We serve a God that cannot tolerate sin. He can't tolerate sin. The more sin you have in your life, the less God you have in your life. The, the, the more God you have in your life, the less sin you have in your life. And, and let me tell you something, the holiness being holy, being set apart, it's not something that's going to come without effort. You're not going to get this without any effort. Being holy, it's going to take an effort. It's not going to come in your life without it. It's not going to automatically happen. Holiness isn't just going to wake up one day and be holy just because you got saved. 
Now what we're going to do is we're going to divide these passages up into two sections that we're going to talk about it. The first section is only the first three verses, and all the rest of the verses, I think ten after that, those last ten verses, are the second section. Okay, So let's jump right into this. I'm going to call this first section, we're going to call it the method of holiness. The method of holiness. Now, when we, and that's verses 13 through 15. Now, when we hear the phrase holy, we do get this picture in our mind. We get this picture in our mind, you know, maybe we think, oh, the preacher, uh, the preacher wants me to, to be holy. Means he wants us to live like monks and turn our, 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 our houses into churches. And, and that may be where your mind goes. But, and to be honest with you, the word holy is scary for a new Christian. Scary for a new Christian. Now I got I to gotta go through my home and throw stuff away and, and, and I can't have any fun anymore. Well, let me tell you a couple things. Let me tell you a couple things. A Christian can have fun too. I could argue that a Christian can have more fun than the world could have. But number two, that's not where holiness starts. No, you might, to be holy, you might have to eventually get to the point where you go through your house and throw stuff away. But that's not where holiness starts at. You know where holiness starts? Holiness starts out as a mentality. Holiness starts out as a mentality. So, so don't go join the ordnung just yet. Okay? Uh, uh, the first step is getting your mind right. Let's look at the scripture, verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind. So what does this mean? We all know what the, what the phrase gird up your loins means in the physical act. In Bible days, they wore, they wore robes and they wore br uh, britches underneath them. And they would reach down and grab the robe and pull it up and tuck it in their, to, uh, tuck it in their belt. And they did this when it was time to work and it was time to go to war. When it was time to get down to business. They've girded up their loins, okay? So when you say that's the physical act, but when they say this is the figurative language, basically girding up your loins is a way to say it's time to man up. You know, when I was plumbing with my Uncle Bobby when I was a teenager, and he told me to do something, and I was having a little trouble getting it done, but he knew I could do it, he'd look at me and he'd say, get tough, Broderick, get tough. You know, for him... Getting tough was just a mentality, and he really didn't know how right he was. It is a mentality. And, and right now, Paul is telling the, the Christians behind enemy lines, he's saying, you've got to get tough mentally. When you go against the flow, you better be ready for some pushback. You better be ready for some pushback. Let me give you an example. There may be people in the world that are lost that you're close to, or, or maybe even a saved, maybe even a baby Christian, maybe somebody is saved that's not mature, like maybe somebody in your family that's a saved, but they're, they're not a mature Christian, they're a baby Christian, and a situation happens, and that person gets super mad and super angry, and they look at you to see how angry you're going to get. And then uh, you actually don't get angry. You show grace. And they look at you and think, oh, well, you're weak. You have no courage. You have no backbone. But in all honesty, what they don't understand is that it actually takes more courage to show someone grace than it does to get angry. That's mentally taxing. It's mentally taxing to think that for somebody to think that you're weak when actually you're, you're actually doing something that takes more courage to do. That's mentally taxing on a person. It's mentally taxing to say no when everybody else says yes. It's mentally taxing to say yes when everybody else says no. And holiness is going against the world because the world is unholy. Your brain has got to grow from some, some thick skin. You've got to get yourself mentally ready. You have to prepare yourself for this. And then the next phrase, the next two words in the verse go along with this mentality. It says, be sober. Now, when we hear be sober, we think it, we automatically think not drunk. But sober in the Bible meant more than that. It means to be calm, means to be level-headed, not given to stress, 
It means aware. The kids today like to say it means you woke. He's, he's woke, okay? It means to be aware. Now, when somebody is sober, they, they see what's really going on. They see what's really going on instead of false perception. Whether that false perception is caused by other people or whether that false perception is caused by their own prejudices and their own preferences. They see the real story. They see what's really going on. Being sober means not allowing anything to distract you. You don't, you don't just look at the surface. You look beneath the surface at what's really going on. Look, the world doesn't want you to be holy. The world wants to trick you into believing that unholy is not only more fun, but being holy is really not that bad. The world wants to trick you into this thinking this. Oh, drunkenness is fun until you kill your liver or you get that DUI and lose your job. Oh, immorality is fun until you get that STD or you ruin your marriage. Oh, you know, uh, uh, allowing demonic things into your home is fun. I mean, after all, it's just a movie. It's just a Ouija board till we grow insensitive to the demonic world and it allows them into our lives. You see, being holy is about being sober enough to look past what the world wants you to see. Verse 13 continued. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's where we're at so far. In order to be holy, we got to get our mind right. We, we got to have a tough mindset that's not afraid to go against the world, to go against the grain. We got to be sober enough to read between the lines of what the world is trying to peddle to us. And then we have to see that we're heading in a, in a certain direction. We're heading towards the grace of Jesus Christ. That's where we're heading towards. Being holy is not a destination. You get to say, oh, I've arrived. I'm here. I'm holy now. No. Being holy isn't, isn't a destination. It's a journey. It's a direction you're headed in. And it's, it's something I have to make myself ready for this trip. Listen, Christian, if you don't make the decision to go on this journey of being holy, you'll never go. I may be saved and if I may be a child of God, but if I don't make up my mind to go on this journey, I'll never get there. A person who does a bare minimum at their job will still get a paycheck. They'll still get a paycheck. Even if they do the very bare minimum, they'll still get a paycheck. But you know what? When somebody goes above what is required of them, and that's when they get raises, and that's when they get promotions. When we get saved, we will change. It will happen. The Bible says we are a new creature in Christ. It will happen. However, the Lord's desire for us in this Christian life is not that we just enjoy the bare minimum, not so that we just get our fire insurance and then go about our lives and do what we want to do. He wants us to take this journey of being holy. And where does that start? It starts in your mind by getting tough, by waking up, seeing the bigger picture. Seeing past what the world wants you to see and seeing Jesus at the end because he's the goal and he's all that matters. Verse 14, as obedient children. Now, when this years ago, when the boys were smaller, Caleb was like three or four and Colin was uh, just a few years over him and they were kind of small. And we went to the Santa Fe Steakhouse in Macomb. And this couple sat down and they got their drinks and then we came and sat down across the aisle from them and we had uh, a good meal. The kids were on their good behavior that day. And we were getting done about the same time and then this, this person, they got up, they finished before us and the man come over to me and he shook my hand and he said, you know, I'm going to tell you something. Whenever uh, you and your family and your two small boys sat down beside me and my wife, I almost asked the waiter if he could move us. I thought to myself, well, isn't that special? <laughs> and then he looked at me and he said, but your boys were so well behaved that um, 
that I, I, we, that we enjoyed our meal. And man, my head was so big, I couldn't get it out of the restaurant then. But, uh, you know, and, and he, trust me, he caught him on a good day. And uh, so, um, so I was proud of my boys for acting good in that moment. And you, I, I want to think about God as our father, and we are as obedient children. Think about this. Act like you're in a restaurant with God, and the restaurant's the rest of the world, and you're trying not to embarrass your dad. Okay? Think about obeying God in that way. Verse 14 continued. Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust of your ignorance. This word fashion it means to conform. It means to comply. We see this again in Romans 12, 2, where it says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove was that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So, to conf- so this idea of I have to, con- as a Christian, I have to conform, or I have to fashion, or I have to comply with the world, this is the idea of me as a Christian, now I have to change, I have to pretend to be something I'm not, to be like the world. And, and, and this is true. Look, look, we talked about last week about how the Holy Spirit, when we get changed, the Spirit changes us and we're new creatures. Uh, and this means that in order for a Christian to act like the world, they have to pretend to, do, to be something they're not. Look, we are sinners, yes, but we're redeemed sinners. We're redeemed by the Holy Spirit and by his power. And, and, you know, when you're lost, you really don't care what you do. You really don't. But when you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit in there reminding you, hey, you're messing up. You're doing wrong. You're messing up. You're messing up. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit nagging at you, telling you you're doing wrong, telling you you're messing up. Hey, and if you don't have that, you need to check your salvation. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, anytime you do something wrong and you don't have the Holy Spirit nagging you and telling you that you're doing wrong, you need to check, see if you're really saved. Is that that's what the Holy Spirit will do. Proverbs 26, 11. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. You ever see it? I don't want to gross people out too much. <laughs> but, but you ever see a dog throw up? And then you go to get something to clean it up, and when you come back, it's gone. Okay, okay, that's it. You're right, I shouldn't have went there. But listen, if you have victory over that life, why go back to it? Why go back to that life? Listen to me, the fun you will have is not worth the price you will pay. Our former lusts and our ignorance, that's what we walked away from. And, you know, anytime a Christian returns to that, they're backslidden. Anytime you progress, let's say in your Christian life, you take 10 steps forward, and then one day you take one step back, you're backslidden. You're a backslidden Christian. Even if taking one step back, don't be backslidden. Don't go back to the way you, it'd be too much effort to go back. Just keep moving forward. So this mentality, it takes a tough mentality, it takes a calmness and awareness, it takes looking past in this world, looking past what they're trying to peddle to you, looking at Jesus, it takes for, forsaking the flesh that held you down in the past. When's the last time we said no to our flesh? I'm not talking about just for sin, just for any reason. When's the last time we actually tried to say no to our flesh? When's the last time we fasted? Oh, you're meddling, preacher, you're meddling. Verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. So be holy, be set apart in all manner of conversation. Now, today we apply that word conversation just to speaking. But in the Bible, it was more than just speaking. It was your whole conduct. It was everything in your life. Okay, including your speech. It was every way that you act. Even behind closed doors. Look, holiness just is, it's not just an outside robe that we put in. If you aren't trying to be holy when you're alone and by yourself, then being holy out in public doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It all boils down to this, Christian. Secret sin is not okay. 
Secret sin is not okay. And if you know you're hiding your sin, well, that's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. You may say, Brother Brett, I'm just caught in this vicious cycle. I'm just caught in this vicious cycle, Brother Brett. I don't know how to get out. I don't know how to get out of this cycle that I'm in. What do I do? What does the Bible say about secret sin? Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. Here it is. Here's what you do about secret sin. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That's it. Confess it and forsake it. You say, Brother Brett, <laughs> uh, that's, <laughs> it, it's, it's not that simple. It is that simple. It's not easy. But it is that simple. Confess it and forsake it. Forsaken, it means getting rid of it. Uh, look, you didn't get in this pit overnight. You're not going to get out of it overnight. And it, it's making yourself accountable to someone. You got to treat, because that's what it is. A secret sin is an addiction. You do it behind closed doors because you are addicted to it. Okay? And, and what you have to do is, is you have to tell yourself, look, next time you're tempted to do it, treat it like an addiction and go without it just one time. You're not saying you're going to do it, go away with it forever. Just say, you know what? Next time I'm tempted to do it, I'm just going to say no once. Prove to yourself you can go without it once. That will show you that you can go without it more. Look, holiness is for your whole life, even our secret life. Section two, we're going to call this the motives for holiness. Motives for holiness. The first motive is the standard. The standard. Standard is motive number one. Verse 16. Because it is written, be holy, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, when he says the words here, be holy, for I am holy, uh, he's not just quoting one Old Testament scripture. He's, he's quoting multiple scriptures, okay? Several times in the word of God, it says, be holy, for I am holy. Think about what that means for a second. God is my standard for holiness. Wow. God's the standard. What does that mean? Let me give you a couple of examples. You know, when I was growing up, not my whole family, certain members of my family would look at me and say, Brett, why are you, why are you going to church all the time? Why are you going to church all the time, Brett? Now, I'm thankful to say that 99% of my family today is, is, is mature in the Lord and doing great. I'm so happy. But back in the day, they'd say, why are you going to church so much, Brett? It, for them, going to church, you did it when somebody got, was married, buried, or sick. That, that's when you went to church. Why, oh, they say, oh, when this happens, then I'll go. You know what that means? That means you set yourself as the standard. We are not the standard. God is the standard. Here's another example. When we grow up and we're maturing as Christians, it's God's plan for other Christians to help us grow. That's God's plan. Somebody has to hand feed you the milk before you can eat the meat yourself. Okay, so that is that is God's plan. But but sometimes. Sometimes well-intentioned spiritual leaders have a way of working their preferences in the doctrine. And this is a pet peeve of mine. Working your preferences into doctrine. Take, for example, our hymn books. I love these hymns. I love them. I love these hymns. This hymn book, when I was a choir director at Open Door, this was actually the hymn book that we used. So when I came here and I saw we had the exact same hymn books here, I knew a lot of the page numbers. I was excited about that. I love the hymns. I grew up on the hymns. You guys know when I preach, sometimes I'll study the origin of a hymn and tell you where the hymn came from. I love the old hymns. But for a preacher to stand up here and say, if you take the hymns out of your church or if you quit singing them old hymns, then you're wrong. Now I want to say that preacher, show me that verse in the Bible. Show it to me. I'm sorry, brother preacher, but if you don't have a Bible verse to back up what you preach behind this pulpit, then you're just preaching your preferences. And I really don't care what your preferences is. I care what the Bible says. 
I'm getting to the point in my Christian life and I'm getting to the point in my ministry where I don't care what grandpappy preached. I care about the text of this Bible. What do the actual verses in the Bible say? Because grandpappy preacher isn't my standard. This Bible is my standard. God is my standard. Be holy for I am holy. Brother Brad, if God's the standard, I will never reach it. That does not matter. So that's where the grace of Jesus comes in. Does it, it doesn't matter that I'm never going to get there. Like I told you, it's, it's not a destination. It's a journey. We just still try, strive to be holy. Number two, motive number two, our judgment. Our judgment is a motive. Verse 17. And if you call on the Father, oh, stop there. So we're calling out to God. Why do we call out to God? To pray. I call out to God when I'm sick and when I need help and when I want to praise him and asking and receiving. So we call out to God in prayer. So what he's about to tell us is going to help us in our prayer lives. Okay. Oh, by the way, holy people pray. Just putting that out there. Well, let's continue. Who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. Okay. So remember that when you pray, God does not show partiality. He does not show partiality. So when we call on him to pray, do not think he's not going to consider our works as he's listening to our prayers. Don't think he's not going to do that. If you have two kids and one kid has been listening to you and doing right and paying attention, doing everything you say, but then the other kid is acting up and just been horrible and not listening to everything, anything you say, and been talking back, and the ice cream truck comes up, who gets the ice cream cone and who doesn't? Continuing in the verse, it says, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Two things I want you to see here. Number one, sojourning. Sojourning, it means temporary. When we pray, we don't need to pray for things that benefit the world. Because what does that matter? It's temporary. Pray for things that benefit eternity. Pray for things. Just, it, just, it, it, all, it all is how you present it to God. How you present it. Is you present it where it's going to benefit the world or you present it where it's going to benefit uh, eternity? My preacher used to make this joke. He said, you know, we had a bus ministry growing up. And he's like, you, you teenagers praying for a car, you praying for it, you can go up and down Delaware at night on Saturday night. But what you need to do is you need to pray so you can go visit your bus route. Then God will give you the car. So it's just a little funny. Um, so it continues. It says, so what, basically we're sojourning. It's temporary. Pray for things that benefit eternity. And then second it says, pass the time with fear. Okay, we have volunteers in this church, okay? So I say, okay, after church today, I need help setting up some shelves. So I need some volunteers to help me set up shelves. I know a lot of people are going to volunteer. I know that. I'm not going to have any issue with that. But also, you know, there might be somebody in here say, Brother Brett, I got people coming home from my house. They're going to be at my house. I got, supper I got lunch cooked for them. I told so-and-so I was going to meet him after church. I, I can't stay and help you today. And you know what I'm going to say? Okay, brother, we're fine. I got plenty of help. I got more than enough help. You go and you have a good Sunday and have a good meal with, with your family, and I'll see you Wednesday. I'll see you next week. We're, we're cool. But if I'm at work where I'm the boss and I ask somebody to do something, that's a little different. You see, a volunteer does not feel accountability the way an employee feels accountability. You see, uh, 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 when, when you're the boss, you can ask, act friendly to your employees, but at the end of the day, you're still the employer, okay? Remember that, remember the same one you pray to is the same one that judges you. He, he's the one, he's going to judge you. God can be your friend, yes. He wants to be your friend, but at the end of the day, God is also your judge. Fear of God is accountability to God. And accountability to God is a motive to be holy. Thought continues in verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, 
God wants us to live holy lives. God expects us to live holy lives after the high praise, after the high price that he paid for our redemption. He expects us not to take that new life and go out and live like garbage. He expects us to live a holy life. The sin of this world didn't redeem us. It condemns us, and that's not what our desire should be. Don't go out and live like garbage once you get your new life. And the verse continues, you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. So this phrase here, silver and gold, that refers to idolatry. What we don't have, you know, little fat belly Buddhas on our, on our uh, chimneys today. We don't have little gods that we pray to, although some people do today. But for us, an idol is anything that takes the place of God. Anything that takes the place of God is an idol. It's your God. I had a preacher say this. I've told you all this before. I had a preacher say one time, everybody worships their God on Sunday morning. Everybody. If it's church time and you're somewhere else doing something else, wherever you're at, you're worshiping your God. If it's time to be in church, but you're at home looking at the back of your eyelids, then sleep is your idol. Sleep is your God and you're giving him an offering. If it's, time to, uh, if it's time to be at church and you're at home washing the car, that car is your idol. That, that car is your God, and you're giving that car your offering. When it comes church time on Sunday morning, everybody worships their God. Now, work is the only exception to this because God made a provision for work in the Bible. He said, if the ox is in the ditch, you got to get them out, even if it's, even if it's the Lord's day. So, so God made a provision for work. But you got to examine that a little more. The reason why you got to get the ox out of the ditch, because if you don't get the ox out of the ditch, it's going to die. And then come Monday morning, you're not going to have anything to do. You're not going to have any way to support your family. It's a must. So working on Sunday, is it mandatory? If you got no choice, you got no choice. You got to pay your bills. Listen, I'm not going to pay your bills. I'm not going to pay your power bill. You have to do that on your own. But if it's optional, oh, I don't want to go to work because I want extra money for this or that. If it's optional, well, then it could be an, it's an idol. Okay, there's a difference between mandatory work and optional work. Continue, it says, from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your father. So this tradition that's being passed down right now from the Jews is idea that the law saves. So that's what they're passing down. That's gaining merit from God through good works. And of course, that's vain because it can't succeed. But I want you to look at it another way. I want you to look at like traditions aren't what redeem us. Traditions are not what make us holy. A few years ago in our churches, the churches would be slapped full on Easter and Christmas. As long as Christmas didn't fall on a Sunday. Okay. I say a few years ago because I'm noticing even, even getting closer to today, to the, even Easter and Christmas, people don't go to church anymore. But, uh, but for a long time, it was true. And for somebody who just comes to church on, on Christmas and Easter, they do it because they think that makes them holy enough. And it just doesn't. Now, I got to stop right there. I said the phrase holy enough, and I have to clarify this. When I say holy enough, I don't mean for salvation. Uh, I, I just mean, I just mean that following just following traditions doesn't set you apart enough for God. That's what I mean by that. Okay? People pray before they eat, and then they go out and live like hell, and they think because they said God is great, God is good, that's enough. It's not set, set apart enough for God. When I was a kid, I got y'all see me do this a lot. You know why? Because I've got small glasses and they fall off my face. So forgive me for that, okay? Um, when I was a kid, uh, my young kid, I'm not talking teenager here. When I was a young kid, my mom would lay my clothes out for me. She didn't do that when I was 13, 14, okay? Uh, but when I was a younger kid, my mom would lay my clothes out for me. Because I'm the kind of kid, when I woke up in the morning, I was, uh, uh, I'd do this all the way to getting on the bus. And I'd sleep on the bus until I got to school. That's just how it was. And I would, I would get up, and I, I didn't look at the clothes she laid out for me. I would just put them on, okay? 
except for when Spirit Week came along. Spirit Week was different. Man, wacky day, backwards day, crazy hair day, cowboy day. I cared about that. I wanted to win the contest. I wanted the Pizza Hut coupon. And so I, I, I cared about it then. Okay, I cared about it and made it special for me. Now, we've been talking about church attendance up to this point, and I'm just using it as an example, but you can apply this to any area of the Christian life. But since I've been talking about church attendance, I'm, gonna I'm just going to continue the illustration. Let, let, let's just take coming to church as an example. Don't come to church just because it's what you're supposed to do. Try to get out of this thing and come to church just because it's a habit, just because it's an obligation. Come to church because you're seeking a truth. Like, God, I'm going to your house today because I'm seeking one nugget of wisdom. I'm seeking one truth that I can chew on all week and apply to my Christian life to make me closer to you. I'm looking for that one truth. And when you come to church with the mindset, I'm looking for that one truth, it'll change your church experience. Because you're not doing it out of habit. You're not doing it out of tradition. Makes it special, brings you closer to God. Motive number three, Jesus. Jesus. Verse 19 through 21. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But it was manifest in these last times for you, who by him uh, do believe in God and that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Jesus is the ultimate motive behind our holiness. That lamb in the Old Testament that they sacrificed is a picture of Jesus. In fact, the whole Old Testament is a picture of Christ. In Psalms 23, where it talks about the Messiah hanging on a tree, they didn't have crucifixion back then. Okay? But it's just a picture of Christ. And then it says he was foreordained. You understand that Jesus was set, a, set aside from the beginning to redeem us. Okay, Adam and Eve falling, it didn't catch God by surprise. Um, the cross was always God's intention. From the very beginning, the cross was his intention. But I want to focus on a statement in verse 21. It says, who by him do believe in God? So how do we believe in God? Through him, through Jesus. We believe in God through Jesus and by Jesus. And anybody that believes in God, they do it through Christ. Which means without Jesus, you don't believe in God. People hold up this Bible and they say, Oh, well, we all worship the same God. Well, if Jesus isn't part of that equation, you don't even worship God. You're not even worshiping God in the first place. John 5, 23, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which sent him. So that's saying not only should I honor the Father, and not only should I honor the Son, but I should honor the Son the same way I honor the Father. Because if I'm not doing that, I'm not honoring the Father at all. This takes other religions and other cults. This is where this comes in. Okay? How do we honor God? We honor God by living our life for him, by giving him all the praise, giving him all the credit, giving him all the glory, putting our faith and trust wholly and completely in him. And if you're not doing that same exact thing for Jesus, then you're not worshiping God at all. 1 John 2, 23, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. So, so if you deny Jesus, you don't have the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the gate to the Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life to the Father. No man cometh unto the Father but by Christ. I'm sorry, Jehovah Witnesses. Jesus isn't Michael the archangel. And if you're not putting Jesus on the same on that the same height you're putting God, then you're not worshiping God at all. 
There are people that say that us and Muslims, we worship the same God. That's when, when they translate Allah in a translation, it's translated to God. It's never just Allah. That's Oh, that's just God. That's how they say God. We all worship the same God. I'm, I'm sorry, Muslims. Jesus wasn't just a prophet. Jesus was the creator. Jesus is God holy. And if you don't worship him as God, you are not worshiping God at all. See, people that say that we all worship the same God and hold up this Bible, they don't even know what the Bible says. Worshiping Jesus is another way we're set apart. Number four, I thought this one was interesting. Brotherly love. Brotherly love, verse 22. Sing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart. Now, Christians are called to love, but, but especially we're called to love the brethren. And I, I, think, I think we get a backwards view of loving the world versus loving the brethren. I think we have a backwards view sometimes. Our relationship with the world is one of outreach, but our relationship with the brethren is one of family, and there is a difference. Let read for Galatians 6.10. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Okay, let's stop there. That sounds like a Christian. If I have an opportunity to do good to someone, I should do it. That's the Christian thing to do. Okay, let's continue. Especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Whoa, whoa. So that means that my good works ministry, my helps ministry, is actually prioritized to believers. That means if I have an unbeliever and I have a believer and they both need help, and I only have the ability to help one, I'm to help the believer. Um, that's what I'm supposed to do. Uh, the non-believer, I want the non-believer to get, to, to get saved. I do. But when somebody starts a helps ministry and they just focus on the unbeliever and they kick the believer to the curb, um, they say, oh, well, you already saved. You don't need anything. And the believer's standing in the corner, but I like to eat too, you know. Uh, and in and, 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 and Acts 5, Stephen was called to the ministry. What ministry was he called to? Serfs or wait tables to who specifically? The widows. The widows. Let's talk about these widows. These weren't lost widows. These widows were believers. These, these, these were believers. These were saved widows. Look, feeding people is a good thing. But if you fill a lost man's belly with food and you don't give them the gospel, you did nothing for them. You absolutely accomplished nothing. Helps ministries are good and helps ministries are biblical. But the, the Christian is the priority in helps. While the, the priority of the lost it's outreach. Oh, but Brother Brett, how are they going to know us? I thought they're supposed to know us by our love. Well, they are. Let's look at that more carefully. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. We're called to love each other. But this, but this shall all men know ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Believers love each other. And how will the world know we're Christians? Not by our love for the world, but by our love for each other. This is just another way we can set ourselves apart. Helps ministries are good. Helps ministries are biblical. But man, the, the Christian in helps, the Christian is the priority. But for the lost man, for the lost people, that priority is outreach. It's the gospel. And then number five, another way we can set ourselves apart is the word of God. The word of God. Verse 23 through 25. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. 
For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now, in verse 23, the word word, that's the word logos, and it means the whole word of God. But down in verse 25, the word word there, it's the word rhema. And rhema means a specific truth or a specific command of God. So how does Peter end his discussion on holiness? He ends it like this. Why should we be holy? Because the word of God and the truths contained in the word of God will last for all of eternity. While the things of this world that tempt us to be unholy, they're going to wither away like the grass of the field. You know, us men, we don't like to read the manual when we put stuff together. We don't like to read the manual. The Bible is a manual for so many things. The Bible tells us how to go to heaven, how to pray, but also tells us how to be holy. Let me read you this, this, this statement, this uh, quote from A.W. Tozer. He once said, the true Christian ideal is not to be happy, but to be holy. There's so much wisdom in that statement. I can be happy and not be holy. But if I am holy, I am by default happy. Sanctification is the job of the Holy Spirit. Holiness, that's our department. Maybe it's time this morning we recommit ourselves to holiness. How different are we from the world? How different? If the world can look at me and you and say, I see no difference, that's not holy enough for God. You're not set apart enough. How set apart are you from the world? How holy are you? Time we recommit to that this morning.